You're listening to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries, with Jill Carpenter and me, Sarah Rose. Hello and welcome to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks. Uh, Today we're going to be doing one of our Sarah and Jill Discuss episodes, and our subject is Halifax-born naturalist, botanist, mycologist and illustrator James Bolton. So, Sarah... What do you know about James Bolton? Yeah, so we don't know an awful lot about his early life. Um, Various antiquarians and natural history enthusiasts have done quite a lot of research into looking into his background. And it's a little bit unclear about exactly where he was born and lived in the beginning. The most likely record they found is from 1735, which suggests he was baptised at Sorby. The first thing we hear about him really is when he's referencing himself Um, and that refers to in 1758 he says that he found a particular fern when he was looking for plants in Bingley but we're assuming because he had such a good knowledge of the area that he probably grew up like if not in Halifax then sort of very close by and most of the records we have are related to correspondence um, between either his brother, Thomas, or his friends. And we know that he lived in Worley in, I think, 17, about 1780, something like that. Um, there's an address from Worley. So there's, yeah, there's a couple, but he ended up living in Stannery in the end. But um, he sort of moved around a little bit sort of between like 1775, 1780 before he settled in Stannery. So he was a natural history enthusiast, and his main area of interest was cryptographic botany, which is a study of plants that don't flower. So things like mosses, lichens, mushrooms, and they're things that reproduce using spores rather than like flowering seeds. And that was what he was really interested in. So he produced books about ferns and produced books about mushrooms and fungi. Yeah. So what what was his first publication? So we're not 100% sure, but when you compare it to his later publications, it seems really likely that he um, produced a listing of plants that um, appeared in Watson's History of Halifax in 1775. But it's not, his signature isn't on it, it's not sort of dedicated to who produced it. But I mean, it seems likely it was him. And when you look at his descriptions of the plants and how he uses kind of quite plain language to describe um, plants as well as the Latin terms. He use like common common names as well. Um, it seems really similar to like how his, his books about ferns and um, mushrooms and stuff are written. So I think we're pretty confident that he wrote that list for Watson's Halifax, which is 1775. And his, his brother as well, he, he was a naturalist as well, wasn't he? Yeah, so like I say, quite a lot of what we know about um, James is from his letters to his brother Thomas. And Thomas seems to be like really interested in insects and birds and like egg collections and that side of it. They both seem to be really interested in painting and art and drawing. That Quite a few of the letters are sort of talking about the best ways to draw a flower and what's working and what isn't and about different artists and things like that. But yeah, it seems like... James was more interested in the ferns and the fungi and um, Thomas was more into like the birds and um, insects and things. Although James did um, produce a book of about English songbirds as well later on. 
So it's got a lovely title, hasn't it? Um, is it Har Harmonia Rupalis? Is that correct pronunciation? I mean, it's Latin, isn't it? So I don't know, like, yeah, my Latin isn't great. I didn't go to a school posh enough to study Latin. But um, yeah, but the subtitle's actually interesting. It's called An Essay Towards a Natural History of British Songbirds Illustrated with Figures the Size of Life of the Birds, Male and Female in Their Most Natural attitudes their nests and eggs foods favorite plants shrubs trees etc so that gives you a kind of an idea about like how how we studies birds but also about how we studies plants it's always like taking into account where they're found and their habitat and stuff i have to say mm. that his like bird book like i love his paintings they're beautiful but like I didn't really think about it until I started researching it and then I was like, oh no, like the way that he painted birds, he obviously, you know, photography didn't exist then. So he was like, get, he was killing the birds to paint them. Oh. Yeah, so he writes, so we had a friend called uh, John Ingham who was actually a schoolmaster in Illingworth and he writes to him about asking him if he can procure some birds. And he says, Birds for drawing should not be much ruffled and the colour of their eyes should be noted whilst living or as soon as they're dead. So it's a bit like, oh no. <laughs> oh dear. Aww. Yeah. And also like, so when he's writing to um, Ingham, he did give him like a list of birds that he was after. So things like the throstle, the black ouzel, the yellow wagtail, the twite. don't know if that was particularly rare at the time, but it is now. You don't want to be killing twites. <laughs> so, like, he knew that these birds existed. It wasn't like, I'm looking for a species that never existed to draw yeah. kind of thing. So I'm like, mm, did you really need to do that? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was It was um, the mid-1700s, wasn't it? And yeah. uh, there was a lot of just collecting and stuffing of various creatures, wasn't there? Egg collections, pinning butterflies, all that kind of thing. It was yeah. funny, actually, because I... I looked on the internet, I tried to find some of his illustrations because we actually sadly don't have an awful lot of his material in the library. But, um, and when I looked at the birds, I, I looked at them and I did think they're lovingly painted, but they they don't look very lively. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has painted some of them in flight. We have got some... So we've got some of his books in the local studies collection, but we've also got like a big um, collection of illustrations and some more books that are in the, that belong to the library, but they live in West Yorkshire archives in the special collection. So they wouldn't appear on our catalogue? No, they appear on West Yorkshire archives catalogue in the library special collection. So when I did a display a couple of years ago of his stuff, that's where I got the bird illustrations and yeah. some... Um, mm flower illustrations and stuff as well and they came were donated to the library from Chaz Crossland who wrote a lot about James Bolton he was um, part of the Halifax Scientific Society um, and he did quite a lot of research into Bolton a lot of the um, information we've got about him is from there so he managed to somehow we procured a load of these paintings and letters and stuff from uh, Abraham Stansfield, who was from Todmorden, and they were given to Charles Crossfield and then he donated them to the library. They are incredibly beautiful, aren't they? Um, some of the flowers are just amazing. Um, we know that he was he taught himself to paint and to do etchings in order to illustrate his 
his books um, because in the introduction to his fern book, he tells us about it. Um, and if I can just move my cat who wants to lie on the notes, I'll read you a little quote from Bolton. So he says, The drawings and etching of the figures are performed wholly by my own hands, by close and careful inspection of the plants. The employment of an engraver would have been attended with considerable expense, and as the reimbursement was very uncertain, I chose to undertake it myself. I've never before practised the art of etching, that I might hazard only the loss of so much of my own time. Mm. So he taught himself to do these etchings to illustrate it, even though he'd never done it before. And he was sort of modest, but then he's also a bit like, yeah, I taught myself, so, but they're really accurate. And that was his main thing he really wanted, like the um, paintings of plants in particular, to be like observational and accurate. Yeah. What's the process? Because... Um talk about copper plates is that what he did the etchings with copper plates yeah I don't know loads about the etching process and copper plates but as far as I know they covered the copper plate in some sort of acid resistant material so like wax grounds and then they draw the picture into the wax um, sort of exposing the copper underneath it and then when you dunked it in acid you'd be left with like a plate with um, indents and then that's what the ink would sit in for the printing press right so would you have to first of all you draw or paint what you would um, your subject and then you'd have to from that drawing make an etching by as if you know just copying it is that the case yeah, I don't know, to be honest, exactly how the etching, but yeah, I'd assume that you'd make a drawing and stuff first and then do a, do an etching. Yeah. yeah. And then that's that's yeah. what the, yeah, the prints in the books were taken from. Yeah. Because he did original paintings as well. Some of the stuff that we've got that lives in the West Yorkshire Archives collection are like original paint, like watercolour paintings that he's done. But um, I suppose like printing at that time, unless he'd individually painted every single copy, you wouldn't have been able to just take a, like a nice colour print to go in. But yeah, if anyone wants to explain the like etching copper plate process to us, <laughs> they can. Interested to know, yeah. yeah. Where did he conduct most of his research? It seems that it seems from the book titles that mostly it was in and around Halifax. Would you say that was correct? Yeah, the vast majority of it um, of his collecting and observations are around Halifax um, and he's really specific in his books about where he's found each of the samples um, so when he's talking about in his fern books and his mushroom books he describes exactly where they were so not just like the location but like whether it was in a bog or like a wet area or um, like a sunny area or whatever so you can see sort of how they grow so he's describing here where he's found Osmunda Lunaria, or Moonwort as it's known. He says, On the 9th day of June 1785, I gathered on the top of a high bank of pasture ground belonging to Shibden Hall near Halifax, a variety of Osmunda Lunaria, with leaves shaped like a lady's fan when fully expanded, dividended by narrow sections running almost down the base into four or five lobes. And then later on, um, one of the other entries is about polypodium aculatum or prickly polypody 
um, which grows from fissures of rocks in damp places on rocks near the bottom of Benroyd Clough, Norland, and in a little wood called Toad Hollow in Sorbidine. Oh, Toad Hollow. To- toad Holes. Oh. oh, Toad Holes in Sorbidine. <laughs> it's almost poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite poetic. We'll get to that in a, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. As well. Didn't he go in people's gardens as well? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because he seems like, so we don't know what he did for a living and we don't quite know what his social class was, but he definitely had connections with like local landowners and people that were quite wealthy. And it seems like he was had patronage from like the Earl of Gainsborough and people like that who were like pretty high up the social scale. But then he, he talks about being modest, so it's not quite clear yeah, what he did. Crossland suggests that he thought he might have been a teacher but then in one of the um, criticisms of him, someone says that his Latin isn't very good. So maybe he wasn't a teacher because they'd have been expected to know um, lots of, yeah, had to have really good Latin. Yeah. Um, so that's a bit sketchy. But yeah, it seems like he had lots of friends in Halifax, particularly people that are interested in like natural history, who would have just let him sort of come to the house and have a look around the garden. I mean, when he refers to gardens, I suspect he's not referring to like someone's little yard in a back-to-back terrace. We're talking like, you know, like Shibden Hall he refers to and somewhere at Sannery that he refers to going into Mr. Pollard's garden. But I suspect it's like a garden on an estate rather than... Yeah, so it's not like a case of looking out your window and going, who's that in the garden, dear? Oh, don't worry, it's just James Bolton. I mean, it might have been, you never know. I mean, he might have just like had a sense of like entitlement that it was just like yeah I just go <laughs> wherever I like it's for the greater good kind of thing we don't know yeah. but in that period in the mid-1700s was um was the kind of work he was doing was it still considered exploratory and groundbreaking do you think um yes I mean there wasn't like in terms of publishing books about it. So in both the introduction to the Ferns books and the introduction to Mushroom books, he does say himself, like, this is the first like full collection of books about ferns and this is the full collection about funguses found in Yorkshire. Um, like that there'd been bits and pieces written before, but that it hadn't all been collected together. So that he was quite keen on that. Mm. Um and he definitely like made some seems to have made some discoveries that were like quite important and he has like lots of correspondence between other like mycologists in particular about what they found and yeah to try and work out like if they've discovered the same species in their particular area of the UK or if it's a new species and things like that and he's quite keen on he makes some really good points about um, naming of funguses in particular and there's some really good quotes and also about like just because you think you've discovered something and you've not seen it before doesn't mean that it doesn't it hasn't been found before So he's particularly talking about like sort of naming funguses here, but it's quite a big quote, but he says, there's a pride in man to be thought of the inventor or discoverer of something new. In regard to things useful, this is a laudable vanity, but to add a new name to a known plant or other subject in natural history, because we met with an individual perhaps distorted in its shape, diminished or increased in its quantity, sickened by improper food or soil or tinged with colours different to those of its own species this is not only vain and ridiculous in itself but pernicious in its consequences so what he's saying is this particular variety of mushroom might exist in 10 different places and just because it's got richer soil and it appears bigger than usual that doesn't necessarily mean it's a new species 
Um, and then he talks about like the ways that people name funguses. So he's saying, when several men, strangers to each other and in the different kingdoms are engaged in the same pursuit, suppose the same subject should fall at the hands of each and is unknown to them all, each find it necessary to give it a name. But men's ideas and apprehensions vary much so that under the above circumstances of the same object should fall under the under the native of 20 different discoverers that five out of 20 should denominate it by the same self term is little less than impossible. So he's saying like 20 mm. people go and find this in different places, go and find, might find the same mushroom and then all name it something else. Like it might be red. So they might name it rouge something or other. Mm. Yeah. It's likely that everyone's going to name it something different. And then because obviously we didn't have the internet. You couldn't just sort of, google your mushroom you had to have access to the books which were expensive and you had to you know you had to subscribe to get access to the books and there weren't like lots of public libraries at that time and so and you'd have had to like have contact probably with other naturalists that were producing work so you did correspond a lot with with other naturalists you can imagine it's it would have been quite tricky really i mean as well without photographs it it's at the end of the day, it's a sub- subjective interpretation as well of, of something. I, I suppose it would possibly be a combination of not having that those kind of communications, but also a certain amount of competitiveness as well. But, I mean, he does always, like, reference other, like, mycologists in particular that he's referred to. So it doesn't seem like they're necessarily competitive because they do seem to communicate with each other and, but I mean, I, I guess, yeah, if you thought you'd discovered something, it's really exciting, isn't it? If you think you found a plant yeah. that no one else has, has found before. Mm. But I mean, particularly with mycology, like you can have like gaps of years and years. Like, so you might find a patch of honey fungus up at Crag Vale one year and then you won't see it for another five or ten years because so they, you know, the conditions have to be right for it to grow. Yeah. Yeah, he says, uh, when he's in the introduction to the Fern book again, he says, uh, the author of this little essay scarcely knows what apology to make for presuming to appear before the public in a science which has been afforded employment for the pens of so many learned men and able naturalists. What he has here attempted is to bring together and illustrate the British proper ferns, no attempt at the time ever having appeared before our own or ver- any other language. So he's saying like, yeah, there's not been a collection of fern drawings and identification. But I mean, he, he puts a lot of emphasis when he's talking about how he draws the plants on them being observational and trying to get the detail right. And it seems like the reception at the time was generally quite good. So there's a a review from the monthly review of his fern book, uh, which was published in February 8, 1787. And it says... The botanical world will find itself much indebted to this laborious author. For his work is obviously founded on personal observations without which no truth is to be obtained in our inquiries concerning the works of nature. What he sees he records and so far we may implicitly depend upon him. No authority of the dogmas of former writers can awe him into compliance with their assertions. He seems to have examined with care and set down all he observed with exactness. 
That's a glowing uh, <laughs> commendation, that, isn't it? It is, but then they do take a little bit of a side swipe because, I mean, what they're saying is because it's taken from observation and he's really exact, it's really great to have that kind of record. But then there's this, like, strange thing about, like, no authority of the dogmas of former writers. And he does have, even though he appears very modest, have said before if he thinks it's wrong, like, he'll call them out and be like, such and such said... Um, this fern has got however many fronds, but is wrong. Or this is, you know, these two are the same plant. So later on, they say, the botanist can expect no more from such a provincial publication. He has the plants before him. He may exercise his judgment on them in his own way and may please himself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit of a like, yeah, sideways sort of. Uh, yeah, I can't quite work out if it is a compliment or if they're, having a, if they're being a bit snotty about it being a provincial um, publication. Uh, do you think there, there probably would have been quite a bit of snobbery, really, wouldn't there? In terms of, in their eyes, his lack of education, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly what his education is, but maybe, I mean, I guess if it was like a national publication, they might assume that being from Yorkshire, he was like, yeah, less educated. Or I don't know. I'm, it's hard mm. to say at that time because, I mean, obviously there were like very wealthy landowners and educated people and don't know how much of a north-south divide and stuff there was it's quite strange um, it's quite yeah. an interesting time that you lived through because obviously it was like first wave industrial revolutions yeah it was before like the factory movement but Halifax in particular was seeing like a population explosion and like the wool industry like growing immensely and so actually it was sort of a time when Halifax was becoming a really quite a wealthy area yeah I mean, can you can you imagine having to draw a fern? <laughs> They're incredibly intricate, aren't they? Yeah, they are intricate. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess he had it in front of him, so like, yeah. And if, I would imagine he like yeah. took it apart as well. Maybe so. Yeah. I mean, well, Halifax, the area of Halifax is probably there's a huge amount of fern fern growing going on, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's in it's like prime bogland isn't it it is yeah i mean actually crossland writes so he was writing in about i think 1910-ish and he's sort of describing like the effects of industrialization basically and saying how different halifax was to james bolton's time um, since bolton's time a change has come over our flora through the development of our towns and villages not only in their immediate vicinity but also in the woods and on the moorlands throughout the parish Many plants of both groups have disappeared, um, consequent on the increasing impurities of the atmosphere and streams, the decreasing arable land, drainage and other changes on the moors. Gardeners have exterminated a few. Imagine a time when the three club mosses grew on Worley, Rishworth, Sorby and Norland moors. The royal fern at Heathershelf, Mixenden and other places, when cornfields adorned the sides of Gibbet Lane, and fir woods were to be seen at Pelham and near Lee Bridge. And then he talks about how Wiscombe Bank was once a pleasant bush-lined hillside lane leading over the hill. Now its very track is well-nigh obliterated by denudation and protecting sod on the hill bosom having been destroyed by noxious fumes and the bared soil washed down. In the 50s, this is the 1850s, the brow of Beacon Hill was adorned in May and June with the imitable sheen of the bluebells, which could be seen from the town. Its oak trees were, went long before. So it's quite interesting because Crossland in like 1910 is. is saying, you know, 
all this like air pollution and industrialization and people just overgrazing, building all this kind of stuff that's caused yeah like destruction of moorlands and like like the landscape to change um, so it would have been a very very different environment in Bolton's time yeah Crossland does point out he says uh we must cut short this dreaming of bygone days and console ourselves with the fact that these ugly changes have meant bread and butter and homes for the families of thousands upon thousands of toilers and hope for the time when the smoke fiend will have finally been suppressed Hmm. I guess it is a bit cleaner now in some ways. Yeah, we definitely haven't got like smoke. I mean, 1910 was like full on, you know, factories at the bottom of the valley belching out coal. Yeah, rivers would have been really badly affected, yeah. wouldn't they, as well? Yeah. Mm. But yeah, that's why it's quite, it gives you a really good idea about what the plant life would have been at that time before like the factory era. Um, and it's also interesting to see there's a few mycologists in particular who've kind of gone back over his books and looked at, yeah, how many of these discoveries and sort of mushrooms are still accurate um, to like what we know today. And like, it seems like quite a high percentage of them. He was quite accurate in his like descriptions and identifications and stuff. I mean, not all of them the mushrooms in his books he wasn't like these are all new species a lot of them had been like discovered and written about before but he was providing like a more accurate sort of detailed illustration of them that was his his thing to make them like easier to identify and using it talks about like not using overly complicated botanical language but using common names as well as latin names to make um, it more accessible mm. basically yeah, he did. Was it about three volumes of one book? Fern book was two volumes, and then the mushroom book was it's four volumes, so it's three volumes plus an appendix. Right. We've got about four of his letters to his brother Thomas, and they're really like some of them are really quite sweet. He obviously like had a real passion for painting because it, in one of his letters to Thomas, he says. Drawing was what employed my mind and had my love. And I'm glad to find the Orcus beautiful in that respect, but it must be entirely repainted. I shall never repent the pains I have taken drawing, by the by. Drawing is the soul, colours are the body, and both I find absolutely necessary to the constitution of a good imitation of any natural object, though ever so small as they are absolutely necessary to the existence and motion of a swallow, trout, a dormouse, or a man. Aww. So he's sort of really into his uh, um, painting, and he tells Thomas about like his like doubts about painting as well, whether it's good or bad, and if it's quite ready to see. So he's talking about, he says, the pileworth is pretty well painted, I find, but will receive great advantage from a ground colour thrown behind the whole of the picture. It will really exceed my most extended hopes and ideas of it, but I cannot show it thee tomorrow night. I will, if the weather be not much worse, bring it on Sunday about three in the afternoon. This day has not afforded me above five hours. I wish thou could have a piece of blue-grey stiff polished paper to back this piece, such as you use for pressing calabancos, etc. I think it will look well on that kind of back. So they're kind of talking about the techniques of painting and how much they sort of enjoy it as well. Yeah. Like so for him, it sounds like it wasn't just necessarily a 
recording a species. He was an artist as well. He enjoyed the process of of creating a piece of artwork as well. I think he did. I think he was like quite, he sort of references artists as well, like that he's um, interested in reading about. So, and I think he was kind of like interested in the process. I also think he was probably quite a like perfectionist and kind of he saw like the beauty in nature, but and he really wanted to reflect that and show that in his illustrations. But he doesn't want it to be impressionist. So like, I guess like he, he very much wants it to be like accurate. So there was one quote where he talks about um, DuPile's writing. So he's talking about like um, his brothers obviously sent him either some like stuffed flies or paintings of flies. Um, and he says, hang on a minute, St- stuffed flies, <laughs> dead flies. I'm not sure if he's like sent them de- or if he's painted them, but he says, yeah, it's a bit strange. Maybe he's painted them. Maybe his brother's draw- sent him, you know, drawings of flies. But his brother was also like a big collector. He had like yeah. a, a collection of insects and stuff like literal insects dried or whatever you do with them. So, yeah, he says, I now see that the choice of flies thou made was the effect of deliberation. Thou never gave me any flies before, wherein a painter had the opportunity of showing his fingers and colours. Yes, it probably was a painting. Thou says there is no sublime above beautiful nature. I always thought so and so, and am extremely fond of De Pyle's writing in other respects. Yet I've cursed him a hundred times when he thunders out any other notion. So I had to look this up, but um, he's referring to Roger de Piles, who's um, like a French painter and art critic. And he wrote a lot about the conflict between traditionalism and modernism um, in painting. So he was quite into like, I guess what we think of like expressionism. So like the use of colours and he sort of describes the way that um, you can use light and shade make things stand out and stuff and perspective yeah yeah I think what he's arguing is he's saying like he likes the idea of of you know modernism and the beauty of it but actually if it's not like accurate he's not like into it and it's quite interesting and that's what frustrates yeah. him so we obviously like read a lot into sort of art critics and you know techniques of painting and stuff like that and was interested in learning kind of about techniques and knowing what other people sort of thought about about painting and yeah ways of painting was it mostly watercolors then that he was doing? He was doing. Yeah, I mean the originals that we've got are all, I think, watercolors. Um, but yeah, and then he had his etchings and so mm. on as well. So I mean, he has a lot of sketches as well that are like, I guess, like charcoal sketches. Yeah, when I was looking, just reading around him, um, the some of his drawings are in other part other museums in other parts of the country as well so he was quite widely known and even there's some illustrations that um are in the special collections library in the u.s department of agriculture as well yeah i mean he was quite well respected and known in his time and when he died obituaries appeared in national newspapers the leeds mercury actually described him as well-known amongst naturalists as being the finest drawer and colourer of flowers in the north of England. Yeah. The other thing we haven't mentioned is that he had a um, poetic ambition as well. You don't say. <laughs> it's quite funny because in one of his letters to Thomas, he's like talking about some sort of epic poem. So before that, he's talking about Milton and Homer and Virgil. So he's not like afraid of, you know, referencing the great, you know, epic poets. And he's saying like, 
oh, it couldn't be less than 70 or 80 sheets and it's going to take, you know, years worth of work. But as far as we know, he never produced this like epic poetic work. But occasionally he does kind of in his letters have like little bits of poetry and it gets a bit like sentimental. And so there was one letter to his brother and I was like, oh, he's talking about a woman. Like, who is this person? And then I realised he wasn't. So it starts off, brother, now, what hast thou to remark upon our Philistus? Is she not a perfect Phyllis? See the man she inspires me. Does she not does she not thee and set thee down at toad holes and make thee feel thine self just about eighteen years old? And I'm like, he's got to be talking about a woman that's making him feel like an eighteen year old. And then I'm look I'm like, Oh hang on. Philitis. No, that is a fern. <laughs> And then the like the poem that he writes afterwards, it's like clearly like his love of this fern. It's quite funny. It's always like, and when thou native genius lured thee down with soul serene to tread the rugged brake, see the tender humid bud expand or the rich ample vigorous leaf display its cheerful varied form to secure the budding bursting layer luxurious bloom, not with intent to rob the parent root or with the rude, brutal touch to discompose the just arrangement or the nice design, but to admire the love and love them more. I was like, well, that's quite full on. They're talking about a fern, but I'm I'm like 99% sure that's what he's talking about. It's like... He's talking about a fern, but is he talking about a fern? (laughs) It could be. Like, I was like, is he talking about a fern, like, in a romantic, like, she's a, yeah, a woman he's lusting after, or is it, like, yeah, code? You never know. Other poets, like, Jared Manley Hopkins did a similar thing, really. Um, It was so, you know, almost erotic, the descriptions in some poems, and you wouldn't, you think that, actually, it's like a, symbol or you know they they're using it to express something that perhaps they just can't really talk about yeah it could be yeah yeah just seems a bit odd because presumably by this point he wasn't particularly young or anything we assume but yeah I mean when I was looking at some of the pictures of the the paintings of the flowers he he he'd done they they are almost some of them they're they're so vivid and and done with such love as well I mean it, it could be that he's just talking about a fern <laughs> but there's there is something a little bit erotic about them as well and I keep saying that <laughs> so, I'm not obsessed or anything <laughs> but if you look at them sometimes maybe flowers just are a little bit like that anyway because you know that's what flowers are there to do aren't they they have to attract don't they in some way I suppose <laughs> Yeah, but then he was, like, really his interest was in things that don't flower, yeah. which is quite interesting. So, like, the thing about, I mean, the way that they're, yeah, they're named is because how they, re- you can't easily see in, like, moss and um, mushrooms and stuff how they reproduce. That's all very secret, isn't it? They've got things underneath their leaves. <laughs> they don't have, like, yeah, they're not, like, gendered either, are they? I don't think, like, some plants. You need to go and look at the Jacobean lily, though. Or even more so, what was the other one? Blush Provence Rose. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. It's just a bit frustrating that we've never been able to find, like, yeah, that much about him. Like, can't even find where he's buried. So we know he died in 1799 from his death notice. And we know that he was 
friends with the um, curate of the Unitarian Chapel on Northgate, but the um, burial records for like there's like a ten year period around where he died that are missing. <laughs> so I mean, it seems like quite likely he might have been buried there. But then, because in his letters he really doesn't give any, even though he's writing to his brother, he really doesn't give any personal information away. So he writes all these like in great detail about this sketchings that he's doing and about you know how he wants to write an epic poem and all this kind of stuff and all this like romantic flowery language and he talks about meeting up with his brother but he never really mentions anyone else and he never really sort of says anything about his personal life or his career or whatever it's interesting that isn't it yeah and same in his letters to other natural history enthusiasts I guess he wouldn't necessarily write about his personal life but it's very much like just about the plants or the mushrooms or whatever Mm. you'd think he in writing to his brother he might mention more of his personal life but no but then they also do seem to have lived really close by so we know that his brother lived at Pinest yeah they might have gone to the pub yeah (laughs) (laughs) actually funnily enough I couldn't find like the source for it but um there's a gentleman called Roy Watlin who did a bit of research about 20 years ago into like particularly about the mycology and stuff and he seemed to think I think he found some evidence that um James had owned had been like an owner of a pub at some point so yeah I've not managed to look into that sort of in more detail but like that's something I've kind of yeah quite like to find out a bit more about Yeah, it's a little bit frustrating that he was so private. I mean, it's one of those where, like, he's written to lots of other people. So there's probably other collections, other archives around the UK that have got letters from him, but they would be in, you know, a different mycologist's um, collection. If someone wanted to go on, like, a bit of an epic trail, they could probably be searching for... Like there's a French mycologist whose name I can't remember who he corresponded with quite a lot. And we know that he corresponded with him because there was a snippet printed in like a journal or something. But like if you then if you went to France and looked in the archive for the, that held the letters for this French mycologist, quite likely would be letters from James Bolton as well. And that might tell you more information, but mm-hmm. it's a bit more of an epic tra- trail. <laughs> Someone wants to take it on. <laughs> It's a shame we don't know where he's buried, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, people, a couple of people have looked, tried to find out, but yeah, they've not had much success. It'd be really nice if his gravestone was just like in like a fern patch or something. Yeah, <laughs> surrounded by mushrooms, yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Presented and produced by Jill Carpenter and Sarah Rose. Join us next month when we'll be chatting again to Paul Weatherhead about weird Calderdale and in particular UFOs. <laughs> <laughs>